This is the Innovation Engine Podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation and innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine. I'm your host and Three Pillars Chief Evangelist, Scott Varho, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Rita Gunter McGrath. Dr. McGrath is a best selling author, sought after speaker, and longtime professor at Columbia Business School. She's widely recognized as a premier expert on leading innovation and growth during times of uncertainty. Rita has received the number one achievement award for strategy from the prestigious Thinkers 50 and has been consistently named one of the world's top 10 management thinkers in its biannual ranking. As a consultant to CEOs, her work has had a lasting impact on the strategy and growth programs of Fortune 500 companies worldwide. Rita is the author of the best-selling books, The End of Competitive Advantage and Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. She has written three other books, including Discovery Driven Growth, cited by the late Clayton Christensen as creating one of the most important management ideas ever developed. She's a highly sought after speaker at exclusive corporate events around the globe, such as the Global Peter Drucker Forum. Dr. McGrath, very excited to have you. Welcome to the Innovation Engine. It's a pleasure to be here. Topic near and dear to my heart. Let's start off by talking about inflection points um, as a cornerstone of your book, Seeing Around Corners. What are inflection points and, and why are they so hard to spot? Well, a strategic inflection point is something that creates a 10x shift in the environment in which you're operating. So it's some shift that makes things 10x faster or 10x cheaper or 10x more convenient. And the reason they're so hard to spot is that we grow up in an envelope of constraints. You can think of it that way. So any organization is born at a given point in time. And as you develop a recipe for success, that becomes your reality. And what an inflection point does is it changes that reality. But you're still living in the world of the past that was successful before. Yeah, yeah, which makes sense. Your 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 conviction overcame the objections and the problems in order to get you to that success. Now your conviction is holding you back from realizing that this inflection point may be may be coming. Is mm-hmm. that is that right? Absolutely. <laughs> So one of the dangers when you do spot an inflection point is getting too far ahead of it, um, Mm -hmm. you know, before before it's actually uh, arrived. Um, For all that Netflix has done well in the in the last decade plus, one of their biggest slip ups came when they moved too quickly ahead of an inflection point. Can you can you comment on that story? uh, That was a great story. Well, so um, Reed Hastings had been predicting since he founded the company that eventually what they called video on demand back in the day, we would call it streaming today, would become the way that video was distributed. And he had a very strong conviction about that. In fact, every new employee was subject to watching this chart of, you know, DVDs coming and going and then video coming in. Um, And he decided in 2011 that the time had come to make a move. And so he wanted to split the company. He was going to split the company and put the DVD business in a thing called Quickster and put the streaming business in the Netflix brand. But he really didn't think about it from the customer point of view. So as far as customers were concerned, it was a huge price increase because they were going to charge the same for both services. Um, They were going to have to have two queues. So that was annoying. But worst of all, the streaming service didn't have the choice that the DVD service had, at least initially, because they hadn't worked out the licensing deals yet. So from a customer point of view, this was really bad. And Hastings wrote a note to his team. He said, I'm here at an investor conference. I think I might need a food taster. (laughs) Wow. Wow, that's a little close to home. (laughs) 
So one thing that that leaders that and that's that is a great story because that um, I remember that moment. I remember being a Netflix customer and actually experiencing this. Like, you want me to go to a poorer service for more money, I, but I'm still paying these. I was like, I don't understand what I'm getting, and it, which is funny now because I mean, how could how could I possibly live without Netflix and be be a father? Um, <laughs> it just wouldn't work. Um, so that that is a really interesting uh, example, but so one of the things that leaders need to guard against if they want to spot an inflection point is becoming too insular or inward looking. And 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 certainly, I have a lot of experience working with executives that um, that spend a lot of time uh, looking inward, really making it about execution rather than about curiosity, um, is the way that I talk about it. And and you talk about level skipping conversations in in your book. What are those, and, and how do they help leaders guard against that danger? Well, I think the bigger principle here is that you need to get out to the, I call it the edges, um, mm-hmm. which is where the changes that start to happen are making themselves felt, right? And what happens, you know, they don't present themselves neatly wrapped in a package at the boardroom, right? I mean, they're out there where a customer service rep says, that's weird. Nobody ever asked me that before. Or some guy working on the delivery dock says, I never noticed that logo before, or, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so I think the principle for executives is to figure out ways of getting beyond the usual suspects when you're architecting flows of information. So that could be level skipping meetings. It could be uh, bringing people in who you don't normally talk to. It could be listening tours. It could be spending a day in your customer service operations. But anything that kind of breaks that that sort of thermal layer that tends to surround executives as they get more and more senior. The other thing that happens is people don't necessarily feel comfortable bringing bad news to senior leaders or something that's uncomfortable or that challenges orthodoxy in the company. So you need to figure out a way to get that information. Um, That requires psychological safety. It requires curiosity. It requires making it okay for people to speak their minds. Mm. It's interesting because I preach this so much for product teams. Great product development teams should be curious. They should be humble. Yes, we have the hard skills, but if we don't have the insights, we're not going to deliver a great product. And 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 so a lot of times the details are hugely important. Um, and I, I oftentimes will talk about things like, you know, where you put the are you sure modals, right? If they're in the wrong places, they're really annoying. If they're in the right places, they save your customer a ton of headaches. Um, and but to know that is is to know is to psychologically map. You have to be you have to stay very very curious and understand what are the stakes of this moment for this for this customer. And oftentimes they don't know until you get it wrong. They can't tell you. Yeah. No. And customers will lie to you. <laughs> yes, they will. This is one of the dirty little secrets of customer research. I mean, you go to a customer and you say, you know, would you like lean, healthy food at a place like McDonald's? And we all say, of course we would. We are not the sort of people Naturally. who eat greasy, fatty hamburgers. No, 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 no. <laughs> so you have to actually watch how they behave. That's right. That's right. Well, and 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 which reminds me as well, you know, and and I feel like this is such an underdeveloped um, aspect of product management product development, uh, even in, all the way up to the leadership level, is modeling behavior more effectively. I, I, as a digital product builder for all of my career, I've always had mountains of data. I have every click that they've ever done in my products. I have videos of them using my product. I have everything, but nobody could actually tease out an insight, like, an unex- like wow, this behavior here is curious. Mm-hmm. This is unexpected. Um, and, and how do you mine for the unexpected and then and then drive into it with curiosity. It feels like a, a strong undercurrent to everything you're saying here um, is, is to maintain that curiosity. And then, like you said, the, the psychological safety to say, I'm sorry, it's something weird going on here. And, and I'm not sure it's a defect. 
right? Like not not treat it like a like a like a problem. Well, this gets to something very important about learning that I think we undervalue, which is if you think about the process of human learning, it's it's you have some kind of hypothesis in your head, even if you don't call it that. Mm. And then you go out and you test that hypothesis against reality and either reality is the way you thought it was or reality is different. Mm. And the skill of learning is to say, wait a minute, you know, this is what I thought. This is my assumption. Mm. This is what actually happened. How do I now update my assumption to reflect mm. what I learned? You know, you have a story in, in Sing Around Corners about BBC's very expensive, very unsuccessful transformation, uh, which which I found fascinating and, and ended up with $80 million being spent and, and almost nothing to show for it. But all that said, um, can you talk about the BBC example and, and, and yeah. what might they have done differently? Well, it's the classic case of a large project, and it could be IT projects, it could be physical projects, but big projects that are launched with this like huge bang big teams, lots of uncertainty, which is unacknowledged. So they went into it thinking that they knew what they were doing. And so what the project was, was an effort to digitize all of the BBC's content, um, the way that they moved the content around, the way that they stored it, the way they got it to where it needed to be. And on paper, it looked great. Mm -hmm. Um, And they hired, I believe it was Siemens, um, to do a lot of the programming. So that was mistake number one. They hired a firm that you know, had not done this before. And they also moved forward with a set of specifications without really looking at how it would work with the users. And so they launched this big, huge thing. And of course, once you get a big project, you know, moving and you've got millions spent on it, for somebody to stop it and say, wait a minute, this is going completely in the wrong direction, that becomes very difficult because what'll happen is people will throw even more money at it, trying to fix it somehow and praying that either they're gone by the time this thing's revealed to be a complete disaster or that somehow miraculously something will happen to fix it. The recommendation I have instead to avoid that kind of thing is you do your thinking and experimenting first. Mm. Take as much time as you need up front, you know. And I tell people, if if you can draw a stick figure, you can make a prototype. And you can prototype a system. Oh, thank you. You know, there's no there's no reason that you can't have a big vision, right? That's okay. Mm. But start small is my advice. Get something right, get something small right, then move to the next thing, then move to the next. So you're not exposing yourself to the full brunt of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Well, and but it's interesting, and I did want to seize on on one thing you said in there. They they hired Siemens who hadn't done this before, but I suspect, and and I I talk about this when I talk about three pillar all the time. That because we get asked, you know, have you done this exact thing before? And, and oftentimes the answer is no. Um, but because we teach our teams to be curious and humble, we don't. We also don't bring bias. We don't. We don't say we've done this ten times, so you just need to do it that way. We we are asking questions, and we are we are trying to help you perfect your your idea and make it resonate with your clients and your context which may differ from somebody who's very similar um but but you know there's some there's some nuance that's incredibly important and and so even if we had done it before we would have missed that and i i wondered if you would comment on that Oh, I wasn't trying to imply that you have to have experience in that exact thing but mm-hmm. um what you do need to have is enough enough bandwidth enough exposure just to, to recognize the patterns I guess yeah. and so what I would argue is in the Siemens case they treated this very highly uncertain highly novel highly kind of disruptive project as though it was a standard install a payroll system implementation all and we have to do is execute the same mindset to both things right and right. so I think I think uh, let's recognize that 
just as nothing is completely unique. And uh, I talk to Ben Fleetberg about this all the time. Like everybody goes into these big projects thinking, oh, this is new to the world. It's never been done before. Believe me, some aspect of it, someone <laughs> has tried at some point in the past. And so you can learn from that. Um, the other thing that I think is really important is to recognize that we all suffer from optimistic biases. Right. Mm-hmm. So we all think things can be done faster or more cheaply or with fewer errors or with fewer people than it actually ever requires. And anybody who's ever engaged in like a home remodeling knows this. <laughs> so, so the thing to do is try to find what we call a reference point, which is go find something mm-hmm. that has some similarities to something new that you're trying to do and see how long did it take them. You know, what was the actual mm-hmm power required what was the actual investment necessary and if you can get those comparables you can get much more outside in rather than inside out um, prospects well and and i that that makes a ton of sense because that's also about getting your expectations right and expectations are the mother of disappointment as i as i love to say um but what if you had the wrong expectations to begin with right but but even more importantly is again that humility to go into these projects with curiosity and to say I probably don't know everything I need to know and as I gather new information I should definitely reformulate my plan mm-hmm. to exploit the opportunities as they present themselves and mm-hmm. oftentimes you know like with users when they see something they'll tell you they like it or they don't like it when you talk about it they're like I I can't tell right so you know when you once you show users something they will respond to it mm-hmm. um and and like you said if you can draw stick figures you can you can prototype uh i love that line i'm going to use that <laughs> i'm a big fan of user research and experimentation on paper it's cheaper like i can i can learn a ton and it costs me very little but building that into your plan you know you think about the way business cases get built and this is where i see the friction right business cases get built like how much is this going to cost how long is it going to take and when am i going to get my return on investment and it's like, what if we we don't know the answer to those questions? Can we admit that? Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes, that that at least I, I find is the structural impediment mm-hmm. to true to really building in curiosity and discovery into your plan. Absolutely. And I, I I haven't figured out how to break that. How do you? How, I, I, I know the, the the caliber of people that you talk to oh, have this problem trying to talk to their boards about, hey, I want to go spend some money. I'm not sure how long or how much, and I'm not sure what the return is going to be. I think the lens I think the lens you need to use to look at that kind of problem is the lens of options thinking. So if you imagine a range of uncertainties where if you're in a really predictable business, you're selling college textbooks, right? You can actually calculate what your sales are going to be next year by extrapolating from this year, throwing in some demographic variables, and then maybe a few little uncertainties around how many professors are going to adopt. But if you go all the way to the other end and look at a highly uncertain business, I'm going to I'm going to go into a magazine authored only by chat GPT, let's say, you know, I mean, who knows? But the, the, the pitch to the board is, okay, I think this this is a $10 million opportunity. Here's the logic why I think it's such a big opportunity. And what I want from you for now is permission to spend $100,000 to go figure out if this is real or not. So what you're doing is you're honoring the principle of big potential upside for a very carefully limited and de-risked downside. And that's you know, that's the pitch. And asking for ROI and timing and stuff like that for something that's that uncertain is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do battle with that all the time. Now, the other fascinating thing, and this is what I tell boards, and they look at me like I have three heads, is that's where the high return on investment is. 
By the time you're selling college textbooks, you know, it's commoditized. You know exactly how much you're going to get competitive pressure on price from every angle, and it's going to drive down your ultimate return on investment. So ironically, the place you feel the least comfortable is the place where you're going to get the biggest returns. That's right. And well, you're speaking the language of of, of disruption, right? Um, and actually spotting the disruptive opportunities to your own business, which is fascinating because I really, I have struggled so many times to get executives to, to go there um, because it's such a threat to, no, 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 we need to execute what we have better first. And it's like, well, we, yes, don't worry, we will get incrementally better, but, but where are the big, big opportunities going to come from? They're going to move us. I, you know, I, I always love to point out that 20% of a hundred million dollars is a much bigger number than, you know, 20% of $10 million. So if you want that 20% year over year growth, recognize where you are and realize that you need bigger and bigger swings to get those bigger and bigger chunks. Really interesting. So we're actually, we're trying an experiment today with you. Uh, You feel like the right kind of person to do this with. Um, So we actually uh, put a prompt into chat GPT um, and asked it to uh, to propose some questions for you, um, and uh, and we selected a few. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna take you through those. We we selected only two, but we but actually it was fa- a fascinating experiment. Uh, the prompt that we gave it was: please write a series of podcast interview questions about innovation for Dr. Rita Gunther McGrath, based on her book Seeing Around Corners and other writing available online. And this is this is the first one it came up with. Uh, one of the key challenges that companies face when it comes to innovation is the risk of failure. How can companies effectively manage and mitigate this risk? And how can they create an environment that encourages experimentation and risk-taking? That's actually not really bad. That's pretty good. I'm actually a little scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to put podcast interviewers out of business, right? <laughs> That's right. Throw, throw an throw a electronic voice over this and we're, we're done here. We're good, right? Um, do you want me to answer the question? I do want you to answer. <laughs> I didn't ask that GPT to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great experiment. Though. So I think the beginning point of being able to manage failure is not treating it like failure. Because if you think about it, if you treat failure like a classroom exercise in which there's a right answer and a wrong answer, and if you get the wrong answer, you failed, uh, you're never going to learn anything. Um, so the correct way to talk about it is using the language of hypothesis testing and experimentation. And so you say to your team, right, uh, here's a contract for what I call intelligent failure, which is it's genuinely uncertain. The hypothesis was reasonable. Um, we don't know the answer. And so we're going to conduct an inexpensive experiment to go find out. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. And, it, and it's interesting. And I'll, I'll get, there's a, a part of that that I want to steal, which is the hypothesis is reasonable. The hypothesis is high quality, right? Like not all hypotheses are worth testing. There's not enough upside or opportunity there, even if you're right. So so making sure that it is is high quality, I like that. Um, mm-hmm. As well as, you know, the only failure that I can't stand is one where we refuse to learn something. Well, there's that. And then there's the, you know, I always draw a distinction between obstinacy and persistence, right? Mm. Obstinacy is failing and doing the same damn thing over and over and over again, hoping somehow the results are going to change. Persistence is saying, wait a minute, I believe in my goal. I believe in my vision. But what I'm going to be prepared to do is change course as new information comes in. And I think there's an important difference there. That is a a major difference, I think. uh, Absolutely. Um, and it's actually interesting if we tie this back to the Agile movement, right, which was meant to encapsulate, if you read the Agile Manifesto and you hear the history, these were engineer, senior engineers that wanted to work closer with users so that they could 
build software they knew was going to be beneficial to these humans that they could they could actually look in the eye and, and build for. And of course, when you look at Agile now, it has become an iterative way to deliver a boardroom uh, a boardroom devised plan or, or an, an executive committee devised plan of what they want their teams to be doing, no longer doing the, the discovery piece, which, you know, the, what happened to getting closer to the customers, right? So that all got lost. Um, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to try to return that that to teams where they're driving their their executives on insights and saying, we have found this to be true um, about our users um, and, and, and actually provide new information into the into the C-suite from the teams that are executing. One of the things that I've just published in the Harvard Business Review is a piece called The Permissionless Corporation. Mm. And the thesis of the piece is that technology has now gotten so good and organizational structures have become sufficiently flexible, if they're managed right, that you can actually replace a lot of what used to require layers of management and lots of bureaucracy to control. So teams can be um, equipped with all of the functional talent that they need. So an intact team, and at Amazon, they call this single-threaded teams. So mm-hmm. they work on something very intensely for a couple of weeks, and that's all they're working on. They're not going to 15 meetings every day and you know, getting distracted from task to task to task. They're working on this one thing together with all the resources that they need. And if you can architect that, you can actually have these problem-solving teams where the decision-making is indeed pushed out to the edges. Mm-hmm. And all of the executive then becomes to create create the guardrails, <laughs> right? Create right. the context, make sure people know what the you know what the vision is in the ultimate direction, but not so much telling people what to do. Yep, yep, yep. Which is very difficult for executives to uh, uh, to to adhere to. Um, okay, so another question from uh, Chat GP, uh, GPT. Sorry. Um, in your experience, what are some common mistakes that companies make when it comes to innovation, and how can they avoid them? It's another good question. I'm, I'm very impressed with your chatbot. Um, <laughs> so uh, I've actually done a bunch of articles on this, which is um, so common mistakes. Um, the first big one is innovations episodic, right? So someone senior says, you know, we need more innovation around here. You, you, you go form a skunk works, you know, and, and uh, you know, come to work at midnight and drink Red Bull, you know, whatever it takes. Uh, and this burbles along very nicely for two or three years. And just as the team's starting to see the fruits of their efforts begin to be realized, because it takes two or three years for something brand new to become ready for market. Um, there's a change in regime or there's a financial setback or somebody gets distracted. And then the first thing that gets cut is the innovation efforts. So episodic innovation, I think, is sort of an uber problem that I see a lot. Mm-hmm. Second one is not being thoughtful about where you're putting the innovation effort. And I talk about seven archetypes. Um, so the first archetype is stick it in a business unit. Well, you know, that's easy organizationally, but it's going to get crushed, right? Second mm-hmm. archetype is maybe you make it a separate piece of an existing business unit. And that's a little better, but you've still got the problem of lack of attention. Uh, third archetype is stick it in R&D. Good, but you know you can lose contact with the customer. Fourth right. is being used a lot successfully, which is uh, make a senior staff person responsible for it, and then create kind of a parallel structure for it. Um, fifth archetype is a whole new ventures division, right, where a whole group of people are going off and doing things. Sixth mm-hmm. archetype is um, is reported to the CEO. Great, solves a lot of political problems, but you can't kill anything once it's the CEO's pet baby. 
Mm. And seventh archetype is this permissionless kind of innovation uh, supporting organization where uh, it's it's part of the culture almost. Um, and right. if you look at like Amazon, it would be a, a classic case of that kind of structure. Yeah, I was I was so impressed. I, I've worked with uh, AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services, for such a long time, and been so impressed on how different divisions within AWS are innovating in their space, um, both but horizontally as well as vertically. Right, so doing new things inside their space, but also making sure it in- integrates with other parts of the, the AWS ecosystem to deliver value, not only for Amazon.com, but for clients who are using that AWS. And it's it's just, it's a thing of beauty. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's really impressive to watch um, and and makes it a lot of fun to be a client of theirs as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, all right, so we're, we're off the chat GPT questions. <laughs> we're going to return to human, human generated questions. Um, but I do want to stick on the topic of, of artificial intelligence because it does feel like I mean, it has captured the imagination. Um, do you feel that we're at an inflection point with with AI and where it's going? Uh, and do you think it'll have a a, a broad impact? Um, I I don't think we're ha- at the inflection point that will come with mm. AI. So I think we're at the early stages. Where I think we are with AI is at what I call the stepping stone stage. So if you think about Let's think about autonomous vehicles, right? Just to take mm-hmm. one. We, I mean, and by the way, this has taken forever. We had the Jetsons in 1962. <laughs> and we're still dinking around with autonomous vehicles. Yes, um, and they still don't fly either. <laughs> well, these things take a lot longer than you think they will. Um, so what what do you do? You know, you know what inflection point is coming. You want to participate in it somehow, but it's still too early. It's The ecosystem isn't right. The value proposition has been defined. People don't even know what it is yet. So what I recommend there is you pick um, a sector which could be a stepping stone, which is a, typically a small market that has a real problem that the technology in its current stage can solve. And so for uh, autonomous vehicles, um, take the military, right? They've got to supply their front lines. uh, And having two troops driving a truck is kind of a waste of time. But the robots aren't smart enough yet to take over that whole job. Um, But they're smart enough to play follow the leader. So this is a product that actually Mm. exists. There's two human beings in a front vehicle. And then these other vehicles can daisy chain behind. Hmm. And so what that means is you've got troops out of harm's way. You can do what computers do best with those things. And it's not a big market, right, thankfully, uh, but it's a step, right? And then the next thing maybe is you have drones. The next thing you have, but you can see what I mean, you're opening up. Things. So with, with AI, um, we're already seeing very successful commercial applications in things like um uh, scanning uh, radiology scans, um, mm-hmm. doing, doing evidence discovery in the legal realm, um, you know, using AI to kind of very rapidly find patterns that would be very tedious and dull for a human being to find, uh, quality control. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're where AI is going to be kind of at an inflection where it's radically going to change, like the cost of producing content or the cost of, of moderation or the cost of whatever. I don't think we're quite there yet, but we are already seeing these early applications. Fascinating. And it, it really is interesting. I, I, I keep coming back to the the psychological challenge of even opening yourself up to an inflection point when the dogged pursuit of something is oftentimes what gets a leader into that position. Um, and, and, and that's, it's, I think there's there's a lot more than even what Clayton wrote about uh, disrupting innovation um, that that holds us back from that 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 keeps us on the sustaining innovation path. Um, but I really like your idea the the break the logjam. Let's run experiments that are financially responsible 
um, that if they lead us to insight, then let's not let's not pretend like we didn't see what we saw, and uh, and then we'll act on that new information, new plan. I like that. Um, you wrote recently on your site about the early warnings of a fading competitive advantage, um, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm, this is also very interesting and, and very apropos. I was actually just talking to a a prospect yesterday where the the chief product officer was saying, "I like the plan that we have." but I'm afraid we're missing the boat on the market. I think the market's going the opposite direction, but our plan is great on executing on the on the market that we've had for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. I was fascinating to watch this and be like, and she's like, but I lost this battle, so I'm just going to go with this. <laughs> um, but so this concept of a, a fading competitive advantage um, is, is really interesting. Um, for incumbents out there that are feeling good about themselves, what what's the first way or the first step that you advise them to take to pressure test their own uh, their own conviction that they're on the right path? Well, I think you have to start with customers, you know, that, um, mm. and, and what happens over time is that something that was once you know, exciting and valuable and terrific, um, it either gets matched you know, in competitive markets. If you don't have an entry barrier, it gets matched or customers get used to it. Right. I mean, if I go all the way back in the day to an innovation that changed the world, the cup holder in cars, <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, I mean, that was not where I saw you going. That's great. Introduced cup holders. You know, you had all these identical Japanese cars, and imagine a young couple out shopping for a car, and they've got this list of things the car has to do. That's as long as your arm. It has to be good quality and get great gas mileage, and 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 and. And so they open the door, right, and they look and they say, "Whoa, this one has a cup holder." When everything else is the same, that's the differentiation. Now, (laughs) especially if they're holding a cup of coffee at that moment, right? (laughs) <laughs> but fast forward 20 years and, you know, I, I, I not too long ago owned a, owned a Honda and it had not one, not two, but 16 cup holders of varying shapes and sizes, all the way from a cereal box to a big gulp, you know? <laughs> so it's a complete commodity. In other words, nobody's differentiating themselves on cup holders anymore. So I think the first thing a successful company has to recognize is that competitors may not be able to copy you, but they can often match you. So if you think about how Microsoft has competed historically, right? Excel is not a better calculator than VisiCalc, but it's good enough, right? Word was not a better word processor than WordPerfect, but it was good enough. So it's that matching innovation that can nullify your existing advantage. So that's the first thing. Second thing is to realize that when you're very successful, there's a huge temptation to believe that because you're really successful, you're really smart. Um, and I won't, I won't name names, but you can probably guess who I'm thinking of. There are certain technology companies that passionately believe that they are very, very smart. And I happen to think they happen to be in the right place at the right time. And God bless them for being able to do that. That's right. but, <laughs> I don't want to take anything away from them. Really but. Mean, you own the recipe for future success, right? Right. So I think this concept of being very humble about it is very valuable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, um, I could talk about this for ages because I mean, I the the need for more curiosity and more more insights, um, paying attention to customers, and oftentimes finding needs and or ways to delight them that even they cannot express. Um, I, it's just such a rich it's a, it's such a rich area, and I I do believe that is going to be the catalyst for the next wave of great uh, digital experiences. That's where I focus, um, but um, but I think product development overall, uh, physical and and digital. Um, so I, I, I definitely think you're you're on to it. You're preaching, <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm certainly on board. Um, it's the number one thing actually that I I really really try to get uh, my customers to buy into is this idea of like if you get a team that's curious, humble, and courageous, 
and has that psychological safety, you have such a better chance to build a great product. Such a better chance. Um, even if they just get aligned on on context, right? Like, you know, what what caused you to create this user story that I'm working on will help me implement it in a way that's more insightful. Um, mm-hmm. I, I get opportunities, micro opportunities to deliver it just a little bit better uh, than it would be otherwise. And for the right kinds of engineers, this is thrilling. Uh, they get to apply themselves, their own humanity to how they build their products. Um, uh, it, it can be a really transformational and it's such a small thing. It's, uh, it's just a change in the conversation. That's it. Not, not, not the, not all the mechanics anyways. Um, like I said, I could wax poetic about this, but I'm, Really enjoying this. Um, that said, uh, we we uh, we like to close out with a speed round of questions, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, all right. So we'll start off. Um, you're the the second New Yorker I've gotten interviewed in the last uh, last couple of months here, and you spent a lot of time as a professor at Columbia. What's your favorite borough? My favorite borough. Well, obviously, since Columbia is in Manhattan, it would have to be Manhattan. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Real? Are you sure? You, uh, do you live in Manhattan? I have a place in Manhattan. Yes. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> um, I, w- I was just in Manhattan yesterday. It was it was actually a lot of fun. I had a great time. Um, are you working on another book? I am. And when when can we read it? Well, it has to get written first. <laughs> but the book is a follow on from Seeing Around Corners, and it's tentatively called Time Zero, which hmm. is really about how do you know that the moment of decision has arrived. Mm. That's interesting. Okay. It's a speed round, so I won't keep going. Um, but you have my interest. Uh, you provide thought sparks, um, and I put this in, in quotations uh, for, for our listeners, um, to your followers on social media and visitors to your website. When, when you're looking for inspiration or something to kick your mind into gear, what, what do you look to for, for inspiration? Oh, all over. Um, You know, there's just a huge amount of interesting stuff going on in the world. And what usually prompts me to write a piece about it is if it's if it's something surprising, which is why I call them thought sparks. You know, it's something that, gee, why why did that happen? Or or that's puzzling. You know, so usually that they contain some element of puzzlement. Yeah, Uh, that that makes that makes a lot of sense. I I love I love mining the unexpected. This is uh, it's, it's great. Well, thank you so much. I, I have so enjoyed this conversation. Um, uh, you know, as as uh, hopefully you can tell, I'm I'm very jazzed by the topic, um, the topics uh, that we have covered here today, and uh, I'm sure we've added some really really great thought for thoughts for our uh, our listeners. So, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This has been an episode of the Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. 3Pillar is a digital product development and innovation partner that helps companies compete and win in the digital economy. To learn more about 3Pillar Global and how we can help you, visit our website at 3PillarGlobal.com. Lastly, remember to give us a rating and leave a review on your podcast player of choice. If you have any feedback or guest suggestions, send them over to info at 3PillarGlobal.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.